and you do know the weaknesses of each of us. And you know the great glorious future of resurrection that awaits us. And between now and then there is a long road with many temptations and pitfalls and dangers along the way. And so we pray for your grace and your mercy that might attend us this morning as we look into your word and in the days to come that we might keep our feet on this path and be strong in your love and in your spirit. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Marketing researchers have noted the rise of ad exposure over the decades. One analyst estimates that in 1960, the average person living in a large American city would have been exposed to about 500 ads through the course of their day. Today, that number is much higher, probably in the thousands. Uh, Some suggest it could be high as 5,000. We are bombarded with messages all day long. It's very hard to escape. Advertising uh, comes to us through TV, internet, social media, comes to us through newspapers and magazines and radio, and then if you just got rid of everything, you turned off all the electronics and you just went for a walk in our city, you would still not be able to escape it as sign and billboard would barrage you with these various messages. Well, the purpose of an advertisement is to influence our behavior in some way, usually to get us to spend money, to to buy something. Well, given how frequently we are exposed to ads, an important exercise is to pay attention to how a particular advertisement is trying to influence our behavior. Ever done that, watching TV or something, and you just sort of like, I'm going to... I'm going to go psycho thing on this. I'm going to break it down. It's trying to affect me. I'm going to take it apart. If you haven't, you should try it. Ask questions like, well, what images um, of fear or desire are being introduced? What's the message that's coming across in this particular ad? What's the version of reality that is being offered to me? And then most importantly, Ask yourself this question, is it working on me and do I want it to be working on me? See, if we are conscious of how an ad is working, then we can exercise greater control over whether or not we let it influence us. Sometimes we're fine being influenced, right? Not all advertising is bad. We might be in the market for a new vacuum cleaner. Commercial comes on and it shows a new vacuum cleaner and we said, great, I'm going to go buy that vacuum cleaner. Thanks, that was very helpful. You know something now you didn't know before. But if we're unaware of the persuasive power of advertising, then we're at risk of letting it influence our behavior without even knowing it, and oftentimes in ways that we don't want to be influenced. Did you realize that in the spiritual realm of reality, there is a massive marketing campaign taking place? In this invisible dimension, there are countless messages being communicated to us all day long to influence our behavior. And much of the time, the messages really work best if the recipient is unaware of what's going on. The Bible has a word for this marketing campaign. It's called temptation. There is a personal force of evil who desires to influence our behavior. 
He cannot capture our will and make us do something, but he can influence. He can shape our understanding of reality. He can employ lots of messages of fear, of desire, of false hope to get us to act in a certain way. Scriptures are clear that a follower of Christ must identify and resist temptation. But the more we pay attention to it, and we should, the more we actually realize two things. First, how relentless the tempter is. He's coming at us all the time with different messages. And if we identify one area and begin to resist there, he'll try a new tactic. He will not give up. The second thing we realize is how weak we really are. Our spirits may be willing, but our flesh is weak. It's hard enough to identify all the ways that we're being tempted, but even when we do identify them, it's still hard to resist. The words of the collect for today capture our situation well. Almighty God, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weakness of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. This morning I want to talk about hope. The hope that we have in the face of temptation. And our hope is this, that Jesus Christ, as a true human being like us, experienced the full fury of Satan's diabolical marketing campaign, but he was not sold. He did not buy in. The Bible says he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. You ever thought about that? Every temptation that you have experienced, in some way Jesus experienced that too. And yet he did not give in. If Jesus had not experienced temptation himself, and he had not defeated it, then our situation would be hopeless. Because he did, because he stood his ground, he is now able to offer help to us with compassion and personal understanding of what we're facing. So we have hope because he gives us help. This morning I want to look at three ways that he offers us his help. They come from Matthew chapter 4, where we see Jesus in the desert being tempted by the devil. This isn't the only time that Jesus was tempted, but it's the clearest depiction that we have of what was going on and how Satan was working against Jesus. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn them there. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. The first help that Jesus is going to offer us is he's going to expose the plans and the tactics of the enemy. He's going to expose the plans and tactics of the enemy, shed light on this diabolical marketing campaign. After his baptism by John in the Jordan, Matthew chapter 3, Jesus was led into the Judean wilderness by the Spirit. A couple of years ago, I visited Israel and we went into the Judean wilderness, and I was shocked at how quickly you go from Jerusalem, which is kind of a higher elevation, down the hill, and it becomes this barren wasteland. That's where the Spirit led Jesus. 
And oftentimes in our lives, God will lead us into a barren place, a metaphorical desert. Have you ever been there? Are you there right now? Could be emotionally, spiritually, relationally. If you're there, know that it's not an accident. The Holy Spirit of God leads us into the desert places. What is his purpose there? Well, it's interesting to note that the Greek word for temptation is the same word as for test, perazo. God is never going to tempt us to sin. He can't do it. It's against his nature. But he will test us to confirm and strengthen faith. It's one of his most effective methods of growing our faith and growing our maturity in Christ, ultimately bringing us into his image. The devil's plan, however, is to use every test, and especially the test in the desert times, to tempt us towards some sin and ultimately towards that fundamental sin of unbelief. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to test him. The devil was going to use it as an opportunity to tempt him. You see how that works? Pay attention to it in your life. God is always testing our faith to strengthen us. Little things, big things, all day long. The devil is opportunistic. He's going to take that test. He's going to try to turn it and make it into a temptation. But Jesus has exposed this tactic, so let's be aware of it. As his temptation unfolds, we see more of the enemy's plans and tactics. The evil one starts by going after Jesus' identity. Flip back just a few verses into the end of chapter 3. Jesus has had this amazing experience. He's baptized by John in the River Jordan. But do you remember what happens? The heavens are opened. And in this rare occurrence, the voice of the Father speaks from heaven. And what does he say? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It's almost like those words are still ringing in his heart and his ears. And he goes into the desert. And what's the first words out of Satan's mouth? If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. He's going after Jesus' identity. He's trying to mess with what happened in the baptism. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but in our baptism, do you realize that we receive that same affirmation by the Father? We are baptized into Jesus, and so what's true about him is true about us. God says to us, this is my daughter, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. That's our essential identity in Christ Yes, we sin. No, we're not perfect, but we are beloved, and we are God's children. But if Satan can get us to doubt that, if he can mess with that in some way, then we are putty in his hands. He can really get us to do any manner of things after he gets us to doubt that. Have you ever noticed that pattern of temptation in your own life? Maybe it starts with just an, kind of an individual act of sin. Maybe you, you give in to some uh, lustful act or thought or you, you snap at your children or you snap at somebody else or you make a selfish decision. 
That's how it begins, but some point in the process, there's this little voice, this little thought that, that whispers to you, yeah, you're really just a lustful, perverted person. You're actually just a bad parent. You're just a selfish individual. That's who you are, so just go on and keep acting that way. He's gotten you twice now. He's tempted you into the first sin, but now he's tempting you into that greater uh, messing with your identity, trying to get you to understand your whole self in a different way. The enemy knows where the battle is, friends. He knows that it's happening in the heart. It's in the heart that we believe and receive the love of God, that we believe our identity as children, that we believe that we are being made into new creations. So that's where Satan's going to go after us. He's going to go after that essential truth that we are beloved, that we are God's children, if you are the Son of God. That's one tactic. Another one we see is that he exploits weakness. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry. I love that statement. Really? You, th- you think he was hungry? I miss breakfast and I get hangry and Jesus hadn't eaten in 40 days. He's hungry. Guess where Satan goes after him first, the very first temptation. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. That's where Jesus was weak. That's where Satan comes after him. Now, I don't think Satan really cares if Jesus eats the bread or not. The bread is not the point. The hunger is not really the point. Satan is exploiting the weakness to get him to doubt God's provision and to take matters into his own hands and to provide for himself miraculously, which we know Jesus actually had the power to do. That's what Satan wants to happen. Stop trusting God. Do it yourself. But he exploits the weakness to get there. Is there some place that you are weak right now, physically? Do you have some limitation, some illness? Mm -hmm. Emotionally, are are you struggling with depression, a lack of joy? Relationally, is there something going on in in your marriage, some strife, some tension, or, or another relationship in your life? Be aware of these places. It's where Satan loves to come in to exploit them. We all have places of weakness. And the more we pay attention to them and pray into them, the more we can be on guard. And might I advise as well that you bring in a trusted friend to say, hey, I'm weak in this area right now. I know the evil one's going to come after me. Will you help me pray over that? Keep talking to me about it. Because it's not going to be in the weakness itself necessarily. It's going to be some other thing that he exploits and leads you down a path of temptation. Oftentimes, it's just like Jesus. He's just trying to get us to say, you know what, I can take care of myself. Thank you very much, God. Obviously, you're not looking out for me here because I'm sick, because I'm depressed, because my marriage is struggling, whatever it might be. So be aware, friends. Another temptation tactic and plan we see in Matthew 4, it's probably Satan's favorite. He's going to manipulate truth in order to influence your behavior. It's going to manipulate the truth. Verse 6, Satan is trying to get Jesus to force God's hand by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. 
He wants Jesus to test God. Uh, Note this, God tests us, we don't get to test God. But in order to tempt Jesus, uh, Satan quotes the Bible. He quotes Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. A little bit scary that Satan knows the Bible. He has it memorized. And he comes and he brings it against us. He has part of the truth, but he's manipulating, and he appears as light. His messages seem reasonable. They're biblical. How can you argue with it? But he's going to twist it, and he's going to use it against us. That's what he does with Jesus. So many ways that he uh, does that in our lives, in our churches. He takes little messages, little parts of the truth, and he twists it and manipulates it. One that a lot of churches, a lot of Christians have fallen into is, well, God is love. Yes. Yes, God is love. No, but God is love, so that means I can do whatever I want, and I shouldn't ever, ever point out that something somebody else is doing is is sinful because my God is a God of love. You see what's happened there? We've taken this wonderful truth, and it's been manipulated in the hands of Satan to convince people that really we can do whatever we want, and there's no judgment, and there's no condemnation. How about another personal example? How does Satan use guilt in your life? Because we're all guilty of many things, right? We commit sins, and so he can come to us as the prosecuting attorney, and he loves to play the prosecuting attorney. You say, hey, remember when you did that thing? Yeah, you, you're guilty. And, and you can't argue, right? Because he's right. You are guilty. But then he begins to take that guilt, and he manipulates it, and he accuses, and he begins to get you to do any manner of things, to go deeper into despair. Or maybe we try to deflect our own guilt by focusing on the sins of others, but he's got us. He's manipulated a little aspect of truth to get us tempted into sin. So that's the first way Jesus is going to help us. He's going to expose the enemy tactics, the enemy plans. But there's a second way. Jesus also shows us a pattern of resistance. Jesus shows us a pattern of resistance. Again, just seeing the temptation is not always going to be enough to defeat it. We need to know how to resist it once we have seen it. And in Matthew 4, we see at least two ways that Jesus resisted. The first one is self-denial. Jesus was fasting. He was denying himself food. Satan saw Jesus' hunger as an area of weakness that he could exploit. But what he did not see was the deeper spiritual connection that was being formed between Jesus and his Father. As Jesus was depriving himself of food, a stronger reliance and trust and love of his Father was growing. And we see that come out in Jesus' response. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Self-denial can be a very effective way to resist temptation. This can include traditional fasting, going without food. We're in the season of Lent. It's a time of fasting for the church. When we do this, we learn to rely on God more. We, We see how weak we are. You skip a meal and you realize how weak you are. And so we turn to God for strength. I think fasting can also heighten and deepen our longing for God. 
brings out that spiritual hunger. Every time we feel a hunger pain, a physical hunger pain, it reminds us of that deeper spiritual craving that we have that only God can satisfy. Fasting can also reveal what is happening in our heart. Richard Foster says that fasting reveals the things that are controlling us. During a fast, we can see more clearly the pattern of temptation in our lives. We can identify more easily the idols, the things that we are worshiping and turning to, to give us hope and joy and fulfillment. There are other types of self-denial besides food. We live in an extremely indulgent culture. In our culture, if someone wants it, we believe that it's good that they have it. It must be right if I want it. And so denying ourselves can be very helpful, if only for a season. Sometimes it could be our consumer habits. Put those on hold for a while, just to not act on the urge to buy something. It could be denying ourselves access to social media or to TV, denying ourselves alcohol or sweets. Some of you might be practicing some part of that self-denial uh, during Lent. Uh, remember that it earns you no extra credit with God. You're not getting more righteous by it. But it can help you rely on Him more deeply and reveal and resist temptation. Jesus was fasting for 40 days. So self-denial is one pattern of resistance. Uh, but the biggest one we see Jesus use is the truth. If Satan's biggest weapon is to manipulate truth and to lie, then we fight back with truth rightly handled. If we have a marketing campaign that's deceiving us and we're being misinformed and ill-informed, we need to go and get correctly informed, right? And we have the source of that in the Scriptures, in the Bible. For each of Jesus' three temptations, um, sorry, Satan's three temptations, Jesus answered with a Scripture. He knew the truth, he knew it from memory, and he knew how to rightly apply it when it was used against him. In this church, we have a fairly high level of biblical knowledge. That's not the case of the church in general. There is a lot of biblical illiteracy in even Bible-believing evangelical conservative churches. And it's incredibly detrimental to our spiritual health. We are susceptible to all sorts of temptations when we don't know the truth and know how to rightly handle the truth, how to apply it. So we need biblical literacy, but we need more than that. The danger in a biblically literate church, people that have pretty good doctrine and know the Bible, is that we have all of this head knowledge and it's not really penetrated our hearts. That kind of knowledge, Paul tells us, it puffs up, doesn't build up. If our Bible study doesn't lead us to love God and others more, if our theology, the study of God, doesn't lead us to doxology, the worship of God, then we're not handling the truth correctly. We need to pray that the truth that we study and that we go to school for, that it would penetrate our hearts and lead us to love and to worship. We need to pray as a community the Scriptures into our hearts share how it is living and active, what it's doing, give testimony to the Word of God in our life that it might capture our emotions and our wills and our imaginations. When the truth has taken hold of us like that, then we are very well prepared to resist temptation. 
Many of us are in a battle today. I would go ahead and say all of us, whether or not you realize it, we're, we're in a battle. We're resisting temptation. But some of you today, you know it. You, you know whatever it is for you, you, you feel it and you're tired. You're tired of resisting. You're tired of, of falling down in the same place over and over again. And, and you're aware of the tactics maybe and, and you're using the self-denial and the truth, but you're just, you're just tired. But I want to encourage you that there's relief. I love how the passage ends, Matthew 4, verse 11. Jesus resists three different temptations. And then we're told that the devil left Jesus. And angels came and ministered to him. And in case we think, well, that was just him, that can't be me, that actually gets it put into a promise later in the Bible. James chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I said earlier that Satan is relentless in temptation, and he is, but we have this promise of short-term relief. If we resist, he will flee from us. He'll come back, yes, sometimes with the same temptation, sometimes in a different one, but if we resist, we know that there will be some reprieve, that he must flee from us. And so if you're here today and you're standing up under some temptation and you're just tired and you want to give in, don't give in. Just keep resisting a little longer. Relief is coming. The evil one will flee from you. Third area of help that Jesus offers us is that he made the impossible possible. The impossible possible. May 6, 1954, Oxford University, an English man named Roger Bannister did something that no one had ever done before, at least not in an official competition. Does anyone know what it is? You guys are good. He broke the four-minute mile. He ran a mile in less than four minutes. And up until that time, uh, no one had done it before. Now, hundreds of people have done it. It is the standard for middle-distance runners. Sometimes when we're in temptation, whether it's a momentary one or a lifelong struggle, we think, I can't do this. It's impossible. And when this discouragement comes over us, we need to remember our Lord Jesus Christ, who was tempted in every way as we are and yet did not sin. But Jesus is not just an example. He actually change something. He actually gives us something. Through Christ, we now have the strength to resist temptation. How? By the Holy Spirit of God living in us. The same Spirit that anointed and empowered Him anoints and empowers us. We now have the power in the midst of a temptation to claim Paul's words from Romans 8 where he says, by the Spirit I put to death the misdeeds of the body. By the Spirit Not by your willpower, by the Spirit I put it to death. Will you try that the next time you're aware of some some temptation in your life? Speak those words out loud until you believe them. Say, no, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to lust. I'm not going to worry and fear about money anymore. No, by the Spirit I put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. It's not impossible. It would have been impossible had not Jesus passed the test, and given us his own Holy Spirit. This gives us hope. Another place God promises, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he he won't actually let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will give you a way out. 
It's possible, friends. We can do it by the Spirit's help. So this diabolical marketing campaign, it will continue until Christ returns and he banishes the evil one. He will whisper at us. He will shout at us messages to influence our behavior. But we need not despair. We need not be afraid in the face of temptation. Christ our Lord has walked this road before us and he offers us help. He exposes the plans and the tactics of the enemy. He gives us a pattern of resistance and he makes the impossible possible. His help is our hope. But in Christ, there's another hope that undergirds our struggle. It's more foundational and I want to leave us here today. No matter how bad things get in your struggle with sin, you must hold on to this. You see, when Jesus resisted Satan's temptation, and not just in Matthew 4, but throughout his whole life, when he kept resisting, when he went all the way to the cross, when he did that, the whole course of human history was changed. You see, when Adam sinned in the garden, it has now been the fate of every human being to live in sin. Through Adam's one transgression, we all inherited a sinful nature and the just condemnation of death that went with that. But when Jesus resisted Satan's lies, when he trusted God, when he obeyed, a new possibility was created, a new fate for human beings. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 5. He puts it like this in verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. Do you know that you can tell the whole history of humanity through two men, Adam and Jesus Christ, the old man and the new. If we believe in the new man, Jesus Christ, we are made righteous through his obedience as a free gift. We get to now participate in the victory that he won. Yes, we still fight our battles of temptation, but the outcome is not up for grabs. Jesus has defeated the evil one. He has exposed the scheme. He has ended this reign of sin and death. And he has brought in a new reign. You know what that reign is that we now live under? It is the reign of grace. Don't you want to live under that reign? Don't you want to resist temptation from that place of being loved and forgiven? The reign of grace, that makes all the difference when we're standing up under sin. Because we follow in the footsteps of the man who crushed the head of the serpent and he set the captives free. We follow a man who knows all that we have done. While we were still sinners, he died for us and he loves us and he heals us and he deals with our shame and he gives us this secure and joyful future. Your ability to resist temptation, though important, is not your final hope. Jesus Christ is your hope. He is the new and better Adam, and he will lead us home. Let's pray.